Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Genesis 21 verses 22 through 34. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that, we have, that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs will, you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Grass withers and the flower fades and the word of our God stands forever. Don't you hate when some words become just word soup to you? You lambs. Like, what is that word? I mean, like, I've, I've, I've lived here all my life, but you lamb. Like, all of a sudden, E-W-E became this weird word. Like, how do you say? Anyway, it doesn't matter. So, so it was just one of those words. You say it too many times. Like, this word doesn't make any sense. This is a nonsense word. So, anyway, uh, you know, this morning as we get into this text, the, the first thing we have to really wrestle with when we get to an exciting text like this is we have to realize that the Bible is a book for us, but it is not primarily about us. The Bible is a book for us, but it isn't a book that is about us. The Bible is a collection of books, right? The, the actual the name means kind of library. It's a collection of books written for us, but not written primarily to us. Like we read this as a secondary audience. And so we sincerely want to communicate here at Missio a deep love for the Bible. And that means we must understand it as something far more than just a devotional tool. Like the Bible is not something that we just get out whenever we feel a little down or a little discouraged and we flip through a page to find a little tidbit of something that's encouraging or uplifting and, and it's, it's more of a devotional tool and all this other stuff that we get to that doesn't really make a lot of sense. It doesn't have much of a point because it doesn't make me feel good in, in my certain moment. This, it is not some mere like self-help guide. Not all that we read 
will we be able to just pull some immediate practical application out of? There is something far bigger and far grander than that going on when we read our Bibles. If we read the Bible in that immature way, we remain immature Christians. If we think that the scope of what the Bible is trying to tell us is just self-help tips or platitudes or motivations or, or self-care, then we do not understand what God is trying to do with this book. It is far bigger than that. There is something way more grand than just that, that little myopic understanding of what God is doing. You know, we all suffer to varying degrees what I call SRS, which means starring role syndrome. We all suffer varying degrees from starring role syndrome. And by that, I mean, we think that the world around us is primarily about us. We think we're the main figure in this wonderful movie that is this rom-com or tragedy or just comedy or whatever it is, or a heroic whatever tale, that we think that we're the starring role of the world around us. And this contributes to so much of our disappointment and dissatisfaction because we expect the world to be something that it isn't. We think if I'm the star of the show, if I'm the center of the universe, then things ought to go so that I'm seen as the star of the show and things ought to go my way. Do we not know how this movie goes? Like this is all messed up. And in fact, we try to shrink the world down into something much smaller than it actually is. When the world then doesn't go as we think it should for our massive, all-important storyline, we think something has gone wrong. But mostly, we are just struggling to see all that God is really doing in a story that is much bigger than just something about us personally, something much bigger than us. And we, we need to come to grips with that because we see that specifically when we come to a text like ours for this morning. Abraham purchases rights to a well from Abimelech. Now, if that isn't exciting, like if that doesn't wake you up in the morning and you read about purchasing, like we're going to talk this morning about land rights, water rights. Isn't that exciting? Who owns wells? I mean, that's, that's incredible. Like that's an incredible text, right? I read a, a sermon series on, uh, I've actually been reading it as we go through Genesis and I've been reading it, and, and this, this preacher, when he got to this text, he immediately jumps into the role of the church or the people of God with the pagan authorities and how we're to be salt and light and how the pagan authorities ought to recognize, as they did with Abraham, the blessed uh, individual that he was and went immediately to all this practical application and all of it really backed up by other scriptures, other good things he brought into it. But I just don't know that it was the point of this text. <laughs> What is the point of this text? Make peace with your pagan neighbors? Okay, I mean, yeah, that's, we should do that. I mean, with, with unbelievers, with be, be kind, you know, whatever you may be, seal your land purchases with contracts. That's exciting, right? <laughs> we got the recorder saying here, you should say, make sure that you seal your land rights with a, with a legally binding contract. All right, there's the passage, let's go home. Uh, that's, we've, we've got to see that God is communicating, honestly, something really beautiful in this passage. 
It's something much bigger than just some little storyline about how I find myself to deal with the, the, the issues of my life. I think you can get there from this text, but you have to first see this broad view of not just what this means for me, but what this tells me about God. The book is not is prim- for us, but it's not primarily about us. Why? What is the Bi- who is the Bible primarily about? It's about him. It's about God. It's what he's doing in the world. And then, yes, where we find our place in it. But primarily what this text communicates to us is something incredible about God. And if we're not ready to see that, then a text like this becomes just kind of like weird, I don't know, purchasing of wells. So this is, and and if we do that hard work, we can then see how this actually does apply to our lives in a much deeper and more meaningful way than just some simple devotional life tips. So chapter 21, last week, Jim did such a great job with the birth of Isaac. And if you missed last week's sermon, I encourage you to go online, get on the podcast and listen to just this fulfillment of of all of God's promises in this birth of this promised son, Isaac. But these these passages, they're smashed together here. Isaac is born, we saw earlier in chapter 21, this child of promise that they've been waiting for for 28 years now, 27 years now, they've been waiting for this child of promise has finally appeared. But we see then in in this passage this morning, the continued grace of God fulfilling all of his promises for Abraham. You know, we keep mentioning this, but if you'll remember back in Genesis 12, right, there are these promises that come to, to Abram. Specifically for this morning, that's promise of an, of an heir. He'll be blessed. Uh, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. But then in verse 7, God promises of chapter 12, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. That there is a specific land promise that is coming to Abraham from God. And a few chapters back in chapter 15, verses 17 through 21. Just, just see it here with me. If you've got your Bible out, look at Genesis 15, 17 through 21. This is after this incredible covenant, right? We talk about where they split the animals apart and lay the halves out and, and Abraham gets put in a deep sleep and God himself in the, in the, bla- in the flaming, uh, the, the torch passes, the lantern, the smoking lantern, the flaming torch pass through these animals. But then at the end of this covenant, oh, here, I'm just, I gave, verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, who becomes Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All of these people that occupy this land, God gives this promise to Abram. Not only am I going to give you a descendant, not only am I going to bless you and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you, that there is a land that I'm going to promise for your descendants to dwell upon. In Numbers 34, I don't go there, if you, but you look up later if you want to, that there is actually a specific description given to Moses of the parameters of this promised land that God is going to give to Abraham and to his descendants. And so this well, back in Genesis 21, that, uh, that is dug 
in, in the ground that Abraham has done possibly many of these wells. This, this moment, this, this story is about Abraham going to secure ownership of this well is within the boundaries of this promised land. This area that God has said, I'm going to give to all your descendants. Well, this well is within those boundaries. Beersheba will become a town that you'll hear a lot about as you continue reading in your Bible. And in fact, uh, it's, it's often described in Genesis chapter 20, verse 1 is one of the a very clear place where when the writer talks about all the expanse of Israel, he says everyone from Dan, which is a, a city in the north, down to Beersheba, which is a city in the south. And so oftentimes this, this region is described as the land of everyone from Dan to Beersheba. And so Beersheba becomes this town known as in the southernmost part of this land that God has promised to Abraham. This well gives Abraham and his descendants a clear and legitimate claim to the land. So God is continuing to fulfill his promises to Abraham. Now, I know that we've spent, I mean, we, we live in our uh, American, you know, milieu that Christianity has had large influence over. And so the attributes of God and what kind of God, even if you weren't churched and didn't spend time going to church, and if you, if you, you would know general promises, like, like God is a God who keeps his promises. That actually, though, is a very uh, astonishing reality. Like if you try to take, a, take yourself out of all that we've known, which is impossible, but to try to get some, forget all of what you know about God, and we're just 21 chapters into understanding God, the fact that this God is a God who keeps his promises is astonishing, is incredible, is, is, is so uh, foundational for how the people of God live in relationship with God. You ever read any other Greek mythology I mean, you were probably assigned it in a college course, okay? That, I, I don't like I sit around and just read, love to read the Iliad. But like me, maybe you were assigned to read it in a college course. And you read these, these Greek gods, and they're always tricking people, holding them hostage. Like, say, you know, they, 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 don't, they're not, they don't make good on their promises. They, they're not, that is not how the gods are known. But this God, the God of Abraham, when he has promised to give him a descendant, Isaac is born. When he's promised to give him a land, guess what? He gives him a land. And so this God, the, the God of the Bible, is a God who keeps his promises. And so when we talk about Abraham securing a well, it's like, oh, okay, that's great. No, it really is. <laughs> this is God making good, fulfilling his promises for his people. The God of the Bible is a God who keeps his promises. And this is huge in our understanding of who God is and how he relates to his people. Our passage starts out this morning with this realization from Abimelech. He looks at Abraham and he says, God is surely God is with you. He recognizes a blessing that God has, that Abraham has from God. He says, God is with you in all that you do. It's a really interesting observation from Abimelech. Why is it interesting? Well, consider all that Abimelech knows about Abraham. Just go back a chapter. Abimelech is the guy who uh, took Sarah from Abraham, right? When he said, this is my sister, and Abimelech is the king who takes, Abimelech might be, Jim mentioned this, might be a title. We're going to see another Abimelech with Isaac 
at Beersheba involving a well <laughs> in a few more chapters. It's really interesting, but no time for that this morning. But it, that might also be a title of king. But this is the same guy, we think, that, that, that is, has had this encounter with Abraham. And he knows Abraham has lied to him. Abimelech is the guy who had to have supernatural revelation from God by this dream that Sarah is, is Abraham's wife and he ought to give her back to her. And so Abimelech knows what kind of dude Abraham is and he ain't impressed, but yet he knows God is with you. We know it isn't an accusation of like, God is with you because you're such, you're such a righteous man. Because, in fact, you read the text, and this is not a, not a flattering text for Abraham. Verse 23, after he says, God is with you, he makes Abraham swear that you'll not deal falsely with me, that you will, or my descendants or my posterity. But as I've dealt kindly with you, you've dealt, you'll deal kindly with me. There's an expectation from Abimelech that Abraham needs to be obligated to do right because he's not going to be inclined to do right. <laughs> it's fascinating. He's saying, I know God is with you, but could you please not continue to be terrible to me? <laughs> so at this point, Abraham then turns that complaint around. And he says, well, I've got this well that your men have taken from me. And, and, we, and the, the, the animals are brought forward. Specifically, seven ewe lambs are given for a sacrifice to cut this covenant, saying that, yes, indeed, this well was dug by Abraham. It is Abraham's well. It is his possession in this promised land. Abraham provides the animals to make a covenant of recognition, uh, recognition, essentially, that this well is his. Now, there's probably some interesting symbology you could do here, like with the seven is the number of perfection, and it's a lamb offering. So Abraham is securing this promised land through the sacrifice of a lamb we're not going to do that. It's really be fun to do that, but we're not. I'm just going to mention it. We're not going to do that. But what happens is that we do see this Abraham at the end of this passage, he plants a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Again, 21 chapters in, who is this God? He's made everything, right? We, we know that. He's made everything. When mankind fell, he said you would surely die, but he doesn't immediately wipe them out. He gives them a promise of Genesis 3.15 that one is coming who will crush the head of the deceiver who himself will be bruised in the heel. And there's the promise. We see judgment. We go through all the passages of the flood and Babel and all of these events. What do we know about this God? Well, they're really, we're, we're just starting to stack up our understanding of God. Melchizedek calls him God Most High, God of the Heights. If you remember that passage, we worked through the, with the passage about Melchizedek. Melchizedek says he is God of the Heights, God Most High in Genesis 14, 20. Hagar, interestingly, calls him the God who sees or the God of seeing. Hagar has this, she attributes to God. He is the God who sees. God himself in Genesis 17 says, calls himself God Almighty, God All-Powerful. And so now we hear this description of God as the everlasting God. Why this title? Why here? Right? We've had the promises. You'll have a descendant. Isaac has shown up. You'll have land. They purchased, he has now a place of land, a well in Beersheba, in this territory, this land. He has purchased in the place that God has promised him. And so Abraham, remember, he received this call 
28 years ago. Now, I, I was trying to think, if I was 28, that would sound really more impressive. I'm a little older than that now, so 28 isn't, isn't as impressive as it used to be. But if you think about Abraham at 75, right, receives the call, leaves Haran with Sarah, his wife, 75 years old, and here's this promise of the descendant of the land. At 85, 86, he has Ishmael with Hagar, right? And then we go on, and finally at age 99, 100, he has Isaac. But now it's the child Isaac has been weaned, so we say two or three years later, Isaac is weaned. So at 103, from 75 to 103, God's promises are being fulfilled for Abraham. And he says, behold, you are the everlasting God. The tree image is the... It's interesting, Allison left already because there's a great Hamilton quote, I, Micah 4.4, 4, where, where the, the, the vision of a, the beatific future, George Washington quoted it all the time in his letters when he says, everyone will dwell under their own vine, under their own shade tree and under their own vine. It's a quote out of Micah 4. And, and this, this, be this beautiful future of this, this image of a tree is where man rests in the care of his God under his own shade tree, under his own vine tree. And this is where we see Abraham Abraham is now resting in the God who is the everlasting God. God is planting deep truths about himself into Abraham's heart. And this is important because if you're going to read ahead, next week we get into some interesting stuff when it comes to Isaac and the, the sacrifice that God calls upon Abraham. And so God is planting deep truths about himself into Abraham's heart. Truths that he is alone the everlasting God. Long after we may have given up, long after the world may have given up, God has no limit. He will not forget. He will not fall short. But when he is perfectly ready in his timing, he will fulfill his promises. Where the reality of our life is just a brief glimpse, the brevity of life, the, the fading nature of our existence, he alone is the everlasting God. He is the self-existent, independent, sovereign, and almighty God. Like Psalm 90 uh, ascribes to God. Psalm 90 says, I can't pull it out. I can't remember exactly. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So it brings me back to this statement of the blessing of Abraham. Why is Abraham recognized as blessed? I just want to push on this a little bit. Is it because he has Isaac now? Sure. He's got Isaac. Is it because he has purchase in the land, he has possession in the land that has been promised to him? Yeah, that's clearly an observable blessing. That is an objective good in his life. These are both manifestations of the blessing of God in Abraham's life. But what is that deeper and grander blessing than that? It is not his offspring or his land. What is the blessing that I think Abimelech sees upon Abraham? Yes, he has the son. Yes, he has this, this land promise. But bigger than that, the foundational blessing of Abraham is that he has God. 
the foundational blessing of Abraham is he, he has God as his God. Yes, Isaac is there. Yes, the land is there. But this everlasting God is for Abraham. In all of Abraham's imperfections, God has poured out his grace upon him. And Abraham has, by faith, clung to the promises of God's goodness towards him. So we come into this room this morning with myriad different, many different uh, requests and desires. Likely there's relationships that we'd like to see mended, maybe financial difficulties that we'd like help with, internal thought patterns that we need healed from, situations we'd like delivered from. We could go on and on and on. And we'd have to concede that to have a positive answer to any of those prayers would be a good thing. But any positive answer to those kind of requests that weren't grounded upon the greater reality of having the everlasting God as your God would leave you woefully short of having all that God would have for his people. The everlasting God, any positive answer to those kind of requests that weren't grounded upon the blessing of having God as our ultimate hope and treasure wouldn't be positive answers worth anything ultimately. And this is where I want us to get the bigger picture. Our greatest need is not for the blessing of God in some situation or circumstance of our life, but our greatest need is for the blessing of God himself in all of our lives, to have him, not to have the things he can bring us, not even to have the Isaac, not even to have the land, but ultimately Abraham's life is pointing to a future out beyond himself. Isaac is great. It is the fulfillment of these specific promises to Abraham laying down for us a foundation of this is a God who keeps his promises, but they point forward to something far greater for us today. Bigger than just us having a descendant, bigger than us just having finally my whatever, my two city lots, my, 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 my land, something far bigger. We have to ask where, where does this land us? Do we believe God and his promises to us like Abraham did? Not having these personalized promises like Abraham received, but remember the promises to Abraham, they do point to a brighter and yet a future reality. As great as Isaac is, he is not the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. We're looking for the snake crusher still, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. As great as the blessing of a land is and a home, it is not the final home of God's people. There's yet a future remade heavens and earth that we will dwell on with our God and Savior for eternity. There's a yet future world that God will one day remake and we will dwell with him in the light of his presence forever. So while Abraham is receiving fulfillments of God's promises to him, they are type and shadow of coming greater fulfillments. Promises that God has made to his people. Jesus, the true son of promise, will bring a laughter that Isaac could never bring. Right? Isaac is a child of laughter and Sarah laughs and joy comes in. But Jesus is the true promised son who will bring joy for his people that the Abraham and Sarah had no idea when it came to Isaac. Far exceeding that. Jesus will win for his people a greater belonging in a land far more permanent, far more meaningful than just some acres over in the Middle East.
He's winning for his people an eternal home with him on a new heavens and a new earth. And just like Abraham, we are called to believe God and his promises to us. This is the true distinction between the people of God and the unbelieving world around us. I think this is the blessing that Abimelech ultimately noticed in Abraham. And it ought to be the blessing that I think is noticed in us if we are God's people today. Where does our hope lie? In our own righteousness? In our own ability to get God's attention and favor? Or is our hope in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who through the sacrifice of himself provided a way for sinners to be made right with God, that we might be brought into this inheritance in the Romans 8 sort of way that we become children of God and heirs, heirs with Christ, heirs of God himself through faith and what Christ has done. This, this picture, this, this small little narrative is of God being the one who promises and fulfills his promises to his people. It's pointing to something way bigger, <laughs> that God through Christ is bringing to his people ultimate hope, ultimate peace, ultimate joy. Does our hope lie in what we can gain for ourselves here in this temporal fading world? Should Abraham be glad? I've got my descendant. I've got the land. I guess that's good enough. Should our hope lie in what we can gain for ourselves here in this temporal and fading world? Or does it lie in the eternal life that is promised for all who are united to Christ through faith? These are the big issues we must anchor our lives to. This is the bigger story that God is writing. Not just getting our little small narrative figured out, but seeing ourselves caught into this grand story that God is writing of redeeming a people for himself, for his own possession, rescued out of their sins, adopted into his family, and given an eternal home with him. This is the bigger story that God is writing, big enough to swallow all of our trials and sorrows and all of our triumphs even, and ultimate joy, the joy of having him and a promised future that the everlasting God is for his people. Let's pray.